Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. I'm Rupesh Patel. Today we have a really interesting guest. And if you haven't seen the human microbiome episode with Dr. Emma Allen Verko, I encourage you to see it because I think this one's going to tie in in some degree, shape, or form. And I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. Our guest today is Dr. Wade Abbott. He's a research scientist at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada and think we're talking about sushi cows is that what's happening today wade <laughs> i'm sure that'll come up at some point yeah well welcome to to nobody's really glad to have you thank you it's good to be here i want to ask you first how was your halloween because you sent me an interesting <laughs> you, it looks like you dressed up as wolverine i'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that how, how did that go well thanks for uh leading with that i can apologize <laughs> for this poor excuse for a beard uh so yeah i um we decided to go as superheroes uh, this this year, so my wife dressed up as Storm, and I was uh, Wolverine. So I don't think they're love interests, but they anyway. It was both, you know, both X Men, and uh, we had a lot of fun with it. Actually, I I can't remember the last time I got so into a Halloween costume. It's probably for trick or treating, I think. But uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I I grew the beard out. You know, I'm at the point where I'm like, you know, let's keep it going. Maybe I can actually grow one of these now. So. Then it just gets kind of gross and disgusting, and then you have to trim it back. Yeah, no, I, I don't know if at that point yet, but uh, we'll see if I can fill in the patches. I, it's alarming how much gray I have now, though. That's uh, <laughs> it's a disappointing yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm starting to experience that now too. So I guess the the costumes thing you said is not a regular occurrence. This is this was sort of a oh, one-off. No. Yeah, no, no, we just uh, we got invited out. I think part of it is. Uh, maybe a response to being on lockdown for so long. And I had been working from home for 20 months. And so it's like every time we get a chance to do something now, I think we're just all over that. So, yeah, we got invited out and uh, we got into it. And, you know, we had a lot of fun. It was, it was a good time. How has the pandemic been for you? Well, I think, uh, you know, looking back, on, I, I don't know if we all really know the impact of it, to be honest. But, uh, you know, personally, you know, our kids are older, so our youngest is uh, is away at college. Uh, all three of our kids, um, mm. you know, are in, in university. Well, the oldest one's now working in the States, so it's it's like we're empty nesters. So it, we mm. didn't have to deal with the home life aspect of lockdown, right? So we didn't have, you know, the kids that we had to teach, and, and we weren't trying to do our job and, and you know, right. uh, keep them entertained. So I think that that gave us some reprieve in the start. To be honest, we actually enjoyed it. I, I was uh, working from home. Um, my wife went back to university, and so she was taking online classes. And then we had all three of our kids at one point here. Uh, so it was a chance to, to be oh. family again. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it's to me, it's gone on way too long. I, I realize how it's affected everybody differently. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think most of us are at the point now that, you know, life's got to go on some way, somehow. And, and, uh, we're all waiting for this new normal. Who knows what that's going to look like. So, uh, yeah, I guess I'm at the point where, you know, I'm ready for the next chapter. It'd be great to start traveling again. Uh, you know, I work from, this is my home office. So I've been here for 20 months. Right. Um, my research group is back. So they've been back for quite some time, but, um, that's one way to keep numbers down at our works, our workplaces to have, you know, the manager is the scientist working from home remotely supervising. So, yeah, it's it's been long. Uh, I can't say it's been terrible, but uh, I think uh, like the rest of of uh, the population, I think ready to move on here at some point. So. Have you have you initiated any sort of creative projects? Like for us, it was starting this podcast. Was there oh. anything that you just took on that you probably wouldn't have? Uh, that's a good question. I. There's a lot of time, especially in the, I'd say the first year, uh, we had to reflect on kind of what we were doing and where we wanted to go. And so, mm. you know, most of my job really is, is glorified fundraising, you know, writing research proposals, 
Uh, and that's, to be honest, I enjoy that. I like the, the challenge of coming up with new ideas to solve problems, right? And building teams and thinking of ways to tackle these issues. Uh, so that, you know, working from home, uh, things had slowed down quite a bit. It gave us a chance to really reflect on, okay, you know, what's going well? Where do we want to go as a research program? Um, and I think, so from that sense, from, you know, the work sense, uh, that's probably, I think, really helped us focus on, you know, where we're going now. Um, mm. You know, personally, I guess it gave me a chance to focus a little bit on my health. And, and uh, you know, we did a lot of, of running, got outside a lot. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think those are probably two of the main main things for me. Are you a long distance runner or do you like the sort of high intensity sprints or what sort of does it for you? Uh, <laughs> I would say uh, it's more the, the, uh, the distance. Um, and uh, so I'm running about 10 K now, you know, I'm not breaking any land, nice. land speed records, but uh, <laughs> you know, I think the last time I was, I was running like this was probably, you know, 13, 14 years ago. So it's quite a bit younger, lighter, fitter, you know, so it's nice to kind of get back to those, you know, those, those times and those distances that, you know, they're good benchmarks where you can really compare back. Um, and it's funny now with my, my youngest son who's an athlete, he's, he sends me his updates on, you know, his, his strength stuff. And he's like, Oh boy, <laughs> something's now he's surpassed. What does he do? What's his, what's his sport? Uh, he's a pitcher. He pitches uh, NCAA uh, Div One pitcher down in Buffalo. Oh, that's amazing! So he's at Canisius College. Um, okay. Yeah, his second year, um, and so yeah, he sent, he sends me his you know his strength test stuff, and uh, there's already things he's crushing me at. Uh, but I'm <laughs> holding out on a few. So bench, you know, yeah. I got I got him there. But uh, uh, but it's funny those you know you get those those milestones or those benchmarks, right? And you can really look back in time and see, okay, how was I doing when I was, you know, 35 compared to now. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And where are you at right now? How old are you now? 47. 47. Okay. Yeah. So you're about 10 years older than me. Not, not too far off, I guess. But if you're bent out benching your son, that's pretty good weight. <laughs> I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got that on the recording now. He's got a, your son's going to probably cringe at that one. Well, he's deadlifting over 400. So I, that's not, oh. even, that's not even close. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and apparently, how was your... Apparently, that's what matters. You know, it's not bench; it's deadlift. Is yeah, I mean, the deadlift is a more functional movement, but it's still, I mean, bench, bench is a tough exercise. It's tough to gain strength in that area, and and it really works those shoulders in a not in a great way. So, I think the fact that you're keeping up and outperforming a bench, I think that's that's pretty pretty awesome, man. I think we're down to days or weeks, though, from the sounds of. <laughs> the gains he's getting these days. So, but, uh, yeah. How's your, how's your diet? Did that kind of fall by the wayside or did, did you do pretty good with that? I think we're, you know, it's funny. Like I said, the, with the kids older now, uh, most nights it's two of us. We actually had our middle daughter move back home, uh, this semester. So some nights it's three of us, but it, we eat differently now, right? Like I just remember dinner time used to be craziness. Like, Get, get home from work. Everyone's hungry. There's activities starting in like half an hour, right. an hour. We got to be across town. It's like, you know, that, that was a way of life for, for just years. And, and then as the kids kind of all grow up and then it's like, things kind of slow down and you can think about it. And you know, so we're, a little, we're more careful about our, our carbs now. Um, you know, like a lot of people, um, we're <laughs> cutting down on some of the, the meat we choose to eat. Um, and yeah, just trying to, I think, just make some simple choices and, and, uh, seems to be paying off. Does your, does your research in any way inform the way you eat? I asked that of, uh, mm. of Emma, uh, in that, that podcast and it was interesting to hear her diet. I'm curious if your research in any way has informed your diet. It, I think it has to, if you believe what you're doing, right. Uh, yeah. it has to kind of affect what you choose to put in your body and uh, some people take yeah. it much more seriously I, I've really been impressed with the conviction that some researchers have <laughs> compared to yeah. compared to me but you know um, 
Uh, one thing that really changed was my appreciation for fiber. And I, I call fiber colon candy, you know, so people don't really like that analogy as much, but you know, mm. I'm getting the colon candy. It's, uh, you know, that's what's, what's the issue with the analogy. I think the word colon kind of, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but you know, okay. it's like, uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's what feeds your microbiota, right? Is these yeah. it's plant cell wall, dietary fiber, indigestible material. And, um, and that's what's getting converted to all those beneficial metabolites that get absorbed by your body. You know, there's all the, the mechanical benefits, um, as well. So it's, it's like, okay, so we study this, we read this, we see paper after paper. So is it just cool science or are we actually going to say, Hey, you know, I need to implement some of these, some of these dietary choices, uh, mm -hmm. what I'm, you know, what I'm doing. Uh, so. I think that's the big one. It gave me an appreciation for how we were raised. You know, my, my mom uh, was really committed to gardening and lots of vegetables, uh, lots yeah. of fiber. You don't really appreciate when you're a kid, you know, but uh, there's, uh, I think, a lot of benefits. And um, so, yeah, we're trying to, you know, supplement, moving away from maybe, you know, lots of meat to more, you know, vegetables and fiber. Um, and, you know, the hard one is the starches, right? Like that's, that's really difficult to replace, you know, if it's a pasta, you know, what they're right, mm -hmm. rice or bread, like there's always those carbohydrates that are so tempting and finding that, you know, the replacements that are going to fill you up, be tasty, you know, look forward to eating. That's usually the challenge. So, you know, it takes, it takes some balance, but um, I don't think you can go wrong with increasing the amount of fiber that you're consuming. I, I find with carbs that if I, if I really start eating some of those things that you just spoke of, then I kind of want them more yeah. and then it's hard to kind of withdraw from that. And then you go through a really hard process of like, okay, I'm going to, you know, cut back on those things that might be maybe not helping you. And then you do all this work, but then as soon as you get that taste again, it yeah. just like comes in waves and it just sets you back, especially if you have certain goals, you know, fitness or, or body composition goals, <laughs> it just yeah. kills you. Yeah. And, and sugar is yeah. another one like that, right? And yes. You totally lose track. He said, like, you can keep eating this, you know? Uh, so yeah, yeah it's uh, I totally know what you're saying. Do you think in some ways, and I don't know if there's research on this or if you know, um, to that, like, let's say sugar, for instance, like is, is the microbiome involved in any way of, of, uh, you know, once you've fed it enough sugar and it wants more, does the microbiome in any way sort of dictate or have an influence on that? So the way I, I understand it, now, so the simple sugars um, is what we call sugar, right? So, you know, table, yeah. table sugar, um, some of the simple carbohydrates, the sweet stuff, like those are actually absorbed by your body. You don't have to digest those. Um, you yeah. know, some of the, the starches, for example, that's one of the main, I think the only complex carbohydrate, dietary carbohydrate that you can digest. If you di yeah. digest starch, you release glucose, which is easily absorbed into your body. So this... This stuff is happening in you know, the saliva, yeah, the pancreas, the small intestine is right. where those sugars get absorbed. They don't even reach the, the distal gut microbiota, mm. right? So uh, that relationship between simple sugar and sweet stuff and the distal gut, um, you know, I'm not sure really what's going on there. I know there's, there's you know, gut, gut brain axes and all these things controlling right. your moods and your appetites, but, but um, the stuff that is feeding the microbiota is that is that fiber, those complex sugars in the plant cell wall, in, uh, you know, the fungal cell, the mushrooms or uh, seaweeds, you know, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk a bit about later. Yeah. So those complex sugars, we, we don't have the enzymes, right, to digest those. And so they transit through your intestinal tract intact. They reach the distal gut microbiota. Those microorganisms are loaded with digestive enzymes that specifically mm. target these types of sugars. And that allows them to break them down ferment them uh, in the colon, which is an anaerobic environment. There's no oxygen there. So the fermentation um, by these different gut bugs is what creates these metabolites that are then absorbed by your body. So interesting. So it's, yeah, there's a real, there's a real, uh, you know, you got to differentiate simple sugar from complex carbohydrates that are fiber. Those are two. Because the pathways are just very different. It sounds different. Like. Yeah. Yeah. We, we don't have the enzymes to metabolize much more than starch and, uh, and mm. lactose. So. Hmm. Interesting. 
So now going into your research, maybe tell folks about how you got into research and then how you got into your certain, you know, the areas that you want to focus on. Like I'm curious about the wicked problems that you're interested in, in, in solving. So yeah, how I got into research, well, I, uh, you know, I was thinking back on this, the, um, grade 12 was a uh, kind of an interesting year for me. I, I, I won this biology award, which actually meant a lot to me. Like I, you know, I hadn't won many scholastic awards. If you looked at my yeah. GPA, you wouldn't think this guy's ended, you know, destined for greatness. <laughs> but I did really well in biology. I won the award that year, and uh, and so I kind of like floated around college, really looking for that inspiration of what I wanted to do. I was married young. I was married at nineteen. We had our mm-hmm. first child at twenty. Wow. Um, didn't end up in college. Well, I stayed in college. I was bouncing around. I ended up dropping out of college actually. Uh, I spent a year and a half just reflecting on life. Um, and there's lots of other stuff going on, as you can imagine, young dad, young husband, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some of the struggles of trying to find your way. And I really kind of had a life changing experience. Um, you know, I, I became a Christian. I actually changed my whole outlook on life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided, you know, it's time to do something. I think it's going to mean something like I, I really wanted to, to make a difference. And that change actually is what inspired me to go back to school. Um, you know, it involved moving away. I got into Trinity Western University, which is in, in BC. And that started, yep. that started the, the path to um, where I ended up. And it wasn't like I knew I was going to be a scientist. It's like I just knew I wanted to go and learn and do something. And by the end of my undergrad, I, I decided, you know what, this science thing's not so bad. You know, reflecting back on my grade 12 award, I was really enjoying what I was doing in university for the first time. Decided mm-hmm. to carry on. I got into graduate school, um, not with much foresight. So it was a real difficult transition for me, I have to say. I didn't have research experience. I hadn't done co-ops. Um, so it was a really tough transition that was able to persevere. I had a, um, you know, obviously a lot of support from my wife and Having three kids then in my PhD was quite motivational for me. Uh, to, so what? Sorry, what age? Wait, did you start your undergrad, and then kind of when did your next two kids kind of come to the picture? So I I graduated uh, from my undergrad in uh, 2000, and okay. at that point we had actually our second daughter had just come along wow. in the last semester, okay. Uh, okay. and then basically I got I graduated. I had a weekend and I started graduate school. I moved home back to Victoria, started graduate school the following week. And it was my first year of my PhD that I, we had our third third child. So we had two young ones, Maddie and Levi were two years apart and Katie was a bit older at that point. She was uh, like six, six or seven. Um, but yeah, so we had the three kids during the PhD and, and uh, it's funny, I, you know, I have um, a cousin of mine, something he said to me when I graduated my PhD really meant a lot to me, I, you know, I said, you know, it's like, it's really, I don't know how I, I, I was able to, you know, get this done with three kids. And he looked at me and he mm-hmm. said, it's because of those three kids, you know, you were able to get it done. So what do you, what do you mean? That's interesting. What do you mo- mean by that? Exactly? The motivation, like, you know, and that's okay. what it was. Like, you got to provide for these guys, you know, you got to find a way. So anyway, that kind of helped spirit me through. Uh, I went on, I ended up doing two postdocs, one at University of Victoria. Uh, with Al Borstein, and then I moved to the University of Georgia at the Complex Carbohydrate Research Center, and I did a second postdoc there with with uh, Harry Gilbert, and these were some amazing times, like scientifically just really exciting. There was so much going on in the microbiome. I moved down to University of Georgia in 2008. I was there until 2010, and there was just some exciting science happening. Um, and so, and you're studying the human microbiome yeah. at this time. So all up yeah. that whole time, my whole graduate degree, my postdocs, I, I was studying uh, human uh, human-based research, human health. I got into interactions with bacterial pathogens and and uh, the human host. When I went down to Georgia, that's when I started studying pathways involved in digestion in the gut, and it mm-hmm. was really just at its infancy. And some of that work ended mm-hmm. up being published in quite prestigious journals, just the, the impact of those discoveries at that time, like it was really taking off. Um, and so, yeah, all my training was on the human health or human processes and mm-hmm. how uh, 
you know, we interact with, uh, with our microorganisms. Uh, so that was at the end of 2010. I moved back to Victoria. I was at the University of Victoria for three months. I started dabbling in some seaweed at that point. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we were looking for on the biofuel kind of application. Uh, I had my interview with Ag Canada. I was offered a position and I started there April 2011. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of another major crossroads, right? Where you land in a government job, you work for Agriculture Agri-Food Canada, all of a sudden you're working about food, you know, like livestock. So I didn't have any experience. I didn't have much network. Um, you know, the funding is completely different than if you're at a mm. university. You're not, you don't know, so if you're at a university, usually you're going for your tri-council funds as your NSERPs, mm -hmm. your CHR. Yeah. So we're not eligible for that. So we go, we go for other pots of money. So I had to learn that system. So it was a, it was a bit of a transition, but... At the end of the day, I think it really was super beneficial to come in from the outside and to bring some different, uh, you know, approaches, uh, some thoughts, some some techniques, ways to tackle problems in agriculture, mm -hmm. and I think that that's really paid off for for um, for how the the program's grown. And um, the other nice thing is I have such a fantastic network for my time in universities, and I continue mm -hmm. to get to work. With some people I really respect and, and you know and uh, and enjoy and and uh, I think that's one of the neatest things about our job is that we build these relationships over the years. People go on, they start their own programs, and they're probably they could be in Europe and Australia, the states, other parts of Canada. Um, but you get to you know work together on projects, or you get to meet at conferences and share your your latest discoveries, and you have these really deep relationships that you built you know in the trenches of the of the lab right. you know and now as we we grow up and we, we pass the mantle of being in the lab to the younger generation that's a lot better than me at it um you know but still we get to maintain these relationships and uh and i think that that's really one of the most rewarding things about what, what i get to do there's uh there's a lot to unpack in what you just said the first thing is just you know, we've already kind of had a little bit of discussion on this, but just incredible way that you were able to, you know, you had your first kid really early and then figuring sort of what your path is. And by the time you're starting your PhD, you have three kids. Like I, I can't even imagine the pressure in terms of, in terms of, I'm, and I, I'm curious about your thoughts on this, but what you would have felt as, because Kyle, the my podcast partner on this, him and I have discussed this feeling that maybe men have of needing to provide and the pride that men take in that regard. And we're, we discuss about whether that's something that, you know, many men have, all men have, you know, wh at what scale or level that is. So I'm curious about, about that um, because I, I can't imagine sort of what you would have felt during that time. Because if you're going into your PhD, I can't imagine unless you're doing some part-time work that there's really much income coming in I don't really know about your wife's situation, but still can't imagine that it would have been very easy. And then I, I, I'm aware of what postdocs make and it's, it's okay, but it's not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a incredible salary by any means and, and you're working incredible hours. So yeah. what was that like from just like a feeling of needing to provide and, and from a fatherhood and, and masculinity perspective? So, yeah, I think, you know, coming from my generation too, I think, there's you know these maybe these thoughts and approaches that are changing a bit and, and what, how we view the workplace. But I know for me, I you know what what was modeled to me, uh, you know a very hardworking dad, right, and mm. and um, hardworking mom too. But just it's like okay, that's you know now you have kids. I think for me it changed when when we, the kids came along because. Up until then, I think my number one thing was playing football. That's all I wanted to do was work out and play football. <laughs> right. And right. I thought that was pretty important, right? But then the kids come, and now somebody's depending on you, right? And right. so what are you going to do with your time? You know, everything kind of your perspective changes. And I think that's just what's in us, right? And, you know, until you have your kid, it's really difficult to, to um, convince people that that's something, you know, that's going to happen to them too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um for me, I, you know, it's just I, working through that season, I, some of it was that you know there's an end, right? Like you're working towards this goal. And I, the way I looked at it was there's this huge pile of dirt, and I just got to move it from there to there 
mm. and then I'm done. So the faster I move it, the quicker I'm done. And so I really kind of threw myself into my work and I, I found ways to get things done but still be involved in the family. So, you know, right. when things were crazy, I, you know, I'd go to the lab at midnight and I'd work till five, come home, eat breakfast, see the kids off to school, maybe have a nap, go back to the, to the lab, like finding ways like that, you know, just to still be in the home, be present. But knowing that, you know, there's this task in front of me and until it's done, like things aren't going to change. So it was, uh, I guess, workmanlike in its approach. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's two types of people. I, I know there's probably more than that, but the way I look at it is there's like people that are just really good in the lab. Like everything they do works. They've got these magic hands, mm-hmm. all of them, right? Or, you know, people say, you know, the uh, you got to, you know, do your your dance to the the research gods or whatever, right? So that things work. Like they just everything they touch, just everything works out. Then there's like the uber intelligent people, like straight A's through through school, right. and you know they know everything, but they can't seem to <laughs> can't seem to put two things together in the lab, right? So um, there's like I was more on like the. Uh, I kind of knew what I had to do, but I didn't have great hands. And so I had to, mm. I had to work and work and work and repeat things over and over again. And I, I think that that didn't help the situation, but it's the way it was for me. And I just, you know, threw myself into it and, and, uh, and things actually went pretty quickly. I, I had four and a half years to get my PhD. So, mm. um, part of that was on a good project. I was in a good lab. I had great support. Um, but I think a lot of it too is was uh, choosing to work extremely hard and diligently to get it done. So you know you can move on. And then in research, that's the big question: is like, what do you move on to? And that mm-hmm. you know that became you know little little crises moments of their own is sure. trying to find out. Okay, well, where am I going to do a postdoc? Do I have to do a postdoc? How do I how do I become a professor? Like that's what you're right. supposed to be because that's sort of the natural path, right? Is is, you know, you become a professor, but not everyone wants to, you know, have a blend of teaching and research. Some people just want to be research scientists, right? And Yeah, no, and, and yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of other responsibilities that you don't get trained for uh, in, the, yeah. in this line of work. And um, yeah. And so anyway, like I said, I was I was fortunate. I, I was I had opportunities in two wonderful labs with Al and Harry and um, that really set the stage and they become you know they become your champions these are the people that mm-hmm. are writing letters and supporting you you know as we struggle our way through right to get that body of work and to get those ideas that a university or a research institution is going to say hey we need to bring this person on board you know and um, took me six years of postdocing doesn't take everyone that long but that's how it went for me and uh, you know, looking back, it's funny. I I had a lot of interviews at a lot of different universities. I, I counted them up. Mm-hmm. I was eighteen or something at one point, mm-hmm. and uh, and I just didn't get the offer. I wasn't the guy for the job, you know. And I for this reason or that reason, and it was a really difficult thing for me to deal with, especially you know with the families. Well, those those interviews, like I, I when I was at the University of Waterloo, we'd we'd see uh, candidates kind of come in and. And explain their research to all the all the students, um, all the graduate students, as part of their interview process. It's an experience, like it's intense, it's intense. sort of full day or two. And so you're saying you've done 18 of those, uh, like that's 15, 18. Yeah, I, that's draining. States, Europe, you know, throughout yeah, Canada. Yeah. Um, and it's not just that; it's not just the two days that you see. It's it's the preparation that you're putting your, pro- sure. your proposal yeah. together. Uh, right. You know, then if you're selected, you get on the you know the short list, and sometimes there's a like a virtual pre-interview now, and then you get invited mm-hmm. on campus to give your research talk. Uh, you, sometimes you have to do a teaching lecture. Then you got to meet mm-hmm. with the grad students. You got to have one-on-ones. There's your panel interview with the, the with the faculty. It's absolutely draining. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then consider, like we're also people thinking of moving there. So in the back background here, you're looking at, okay, well, where will my kids go to school? What's the sure. real estate market like? You know, like you're, yeah. all these other things are going on. And so 
and every every interview is the same. So you go through this emotional, <laughs> just uh, you know, uh, pressure cooker. Uh, and so it was it was really for me draining, uh, and I was left wondering, you know, is this even going to happen for me? Um, yeah. But looking back, I, I have to say, like the 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 training that that went into that, the, the time I spent as a postdoc, I think really prepared me to become an independent researcher. You know, mm. sometimes you got to be careful what you wish for, and we want all these things we're just not ready for, and then you end up in a position that would just be overwhelming, right? Um, sure. And so, yeah, it sucked at the time. It took a long time. Uh, I had you know incredible support from my wife and uh, family, right? So, uh, but yeah, it, looking back, I can't complain. And ending up in government, it was not what I had planned for. But, you know, thinking about the way I work, the way I'm wired, um, you know, we're more released from things like teaching and some of the other administrative burdens that you mm -hmm. get at university. And I think there's more freedom to think about solutions and get ideas funded and and really become creative in your science. So I think that that's been a benefit to being where I am. Well, first of all, congratulations on just, you know, being able to get through that, that journey as you described it. And also just as you also alluded to being able to be present with your kids at the same time. Like I think that um, sometimes those things get pushed to the side and, and um, you know, I think we're increasingly becoming aware of how important the presence of parents and, and being mindful of, of, uh, of that as parents is, is so important to a kid's development and, and the relationship with their, with their, with their parents and, and how they interact with society and friends going forward. So, um, I'm sure you're, I'm, I'm sure it sounds like your kids would probably be very grateful for that. So congratulations on, on that. It's interesting also what dawned to me as you kind of spoken about your early journey is just the infancy in which um, the research on the human microbiome has been, you know, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And, and that was something that Emma had also spoken of. And, you know, something I had asked her uh, was, has any of like, you know, we hear about, for example, the fermentation of foods and why that would have occurred and, you know, the thought is, is that, well, it's one mechanism for obviously preserving your food, but there are also some thoughts that people think that in some ways they're also trying to feed their, their microbiota and their, and their, and their microbiome. And, and I asked Emma whether that had guided her research at all, because you have all this kind of historical lifestyle data, um, that is now being tapped into of looking at sort of like indigenous cultures and how they eat and studying their microbiome and if things have changed. But the fact that the scientific community has really maybe, it sounds like, started researching this only in, within the last 20, 25 years is, uh, is, is quite remarkable. Oh, absolutely. And a lot, you know, a lot of it has just, I think, been a result of the technology and then mm. the cost of the, of the, um, of the technique, right? So we can do things now in a few days that, you know, it wouldn't, wasn't even possible for a few, you know, 15 years mm -hmm. ago, for example. So, um, yeah, I, I, and I completely agree. And I think too, that, that analogy you made about studying indigenous cultures, it's, it's the same in, in agriculture, right? So there's a real curiosity in looking at wildlife and comparing it to how livestock uh, you know, how they're raised, how the production setting and comparing these two, like we're, we're feeding this artificial diet in order to get the best results, you know, right. as far as meat and, and, you know, uh, time of growth and all these things, but what about health? And if we're thinking about things like, are we trying to move away from antimicrobial use, for example, is there more natural ways to actually, you know, keep these animals healthy? Uh, so that's that's actually been something we've we've been thinking quite a bit about uh, in our research. And another very interesting relationship is the is the mother baby, uh, you know, nursing, and that natural right. food, right, that comes from mother to child, how that right. feeds the microbiota. And a big part of that is the immunity, but there's also the, the sugars that are in the milk that are specifically digested by bacteria that are in the gut of the baby. So you get this prebiotic effect that only happens from mother to child. So if you think about, okay, if that's a natural relationship, 
are we mimicking that in you know animal production for example we're not it's completely different it's completely removed artificial. yeah so um except for maybe something you, know, you think of uh cow-calf relationships so something in the beef sector where the calf is born on farm and then they spend time with mom and they suckle and mm -hmm. that's probably the closest but some of these other systems if you think about dairy or swine there's mm -hmm. big problems associated with in early life because they're not getting that that natural relationship so yeah can we learn you know from from these things i think so and can we start to apply some of them to improve the health in natural ways to move away from you know the use of antimicrobials and other interventions that we've relied on that's really interesting so maybe maybe wade this is a good point to hear about the wicked problems that you know you're currently focusing on or ideally would want to address so yeah uh the big ones well actually and this is recent uh believe it okay. or not well it's, not, it's recent to me it's recent to, to a lot of people in my organization and that's that's the new the renewed focus on climate change and okay. you know basically every every research program has been challenged with you know what are you going to do about it how are you going to study uh you know the flow of carbon the the change in mm. climate how what can how can you make a difference how are you uniquely positioned you know how can you build on your research networks to actually study this with our goal of actually you know returning to 40 percent of uh you know uh, emissions in, in 20, 2005 or a net mm -hmm. net zero by 2050 by 2050 yeah, yeah. Right. so these are radical changes uh, we're not talking about incremental changes here so I think that is one of the, the a wicked problem. That's facing not just us. That's facing everyone, right? Like that's not going mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something I've I've kind of taken to heart and, and took a step back and said, okay, what do we do well? Well, we study sugars. We study how sugars are consumed by bacteria. But if you think about it, carbohydrates are carbon and water. So mm -hmm. the flow of carbohydrates through agricultural systems, the creation of, you know, uh, primary productivity is the synthesis of sugars. And then how those sugars are turned over, how they go into the soil, how they're, uh, you know, consumed by microorganisms, the soil microbiome, how they're fed to livestock, turned into biomass, used for energy. Um, mm -hmm. All these things are, there's a huge factor there is the role of carbohydrates and how they're mod modified. So this is something that we've actually you know, started to focus more on with the goal here of studying ways that we could potentially sequester carbon as carbohydrates in the soil. Is there ways that we can grow? Uh, can, you know, can we grow seaweed, for example, which grows extremely quickly and then use that to replace other things in like agriculture? Like actively grow seaweed? Yes. Like, or, okay. So commercially grow seaweed. Because uh, this sequesters a ton of carbon, it grows very quickly, and there's other benefits. They don't require fresh water, fertilizer, arable land, for example. So there's a solution where we can take, you know, we can create carbohydrates in the ocean and then use them potentially in agricultural systems to solve other things, whether it's methane mitigation and live in uh, ruminants, which is a huge area of research right now. Mm. Um, can we use these as potentially bi sustainable biofertilizers? Can we replace chemical fertilizers by, you know, using mm. the the minerals and the elements that are naturally occurring in seaweed? So, this is just one example of where we can think about. Okay, uh, let's look at this a different way, and uh, you know, how can we use our particular expertise, uh, you know, to to help contribute to solving some of these problems? That's that's really interesting. Um, so then what about, uh, you know, cattle that just eat grass? Like we, we had a, we had a conversation with somebody who's a regenerative farmer and I don't know if you've heard of the research that was done. I think it was a farm in Georgia. I keep forgetting what the name is, but, um, there was an independent, um, uh, consulting project that was done and they found that that farm, which was a cattle farm, was able and used regenerative practices, was actually um, sequestering carbon at the end of it. Sure. And it was because of, uh, you know, just the process of time control grazing and eating grass and, and, and all that stuff. Um, is, is seaweed potentially more superior than like 
grass-fed cattle that potentially sequestering carbon or am I misunderstanding something? Well, there's, there's massive potential with seaweed uh, when we're talking about Asparagopsis taxiformis. So this is one species that grows uh, mostly in Australia, but kind of in the Mediterranean as well. Uh, I think also in, in South America, from what I understand. So it, you know, warmer climates. So there is this ability uh, within this seaweed where there's an accumulation of some compounds. Um, and these are haloforms, so like bromoforms and that. And they actually mitigate, they inhibit the, meth, uh, the methanogenic pathway in methanogens that colonize the rumen. So they are a direct inhibitor of methanogenesis. So this, this is a rumen. Does, sorry, does that, does that mean that if it's a direct inhibitor that you would potentially produce less methane at the end exactly. of it? Exactly. And we're talking low inclusion rates. Like this, this is a remarkable discovery. Uh, the first report was Rob Kinley. Uh, I believe when he was still in Canada, he's now down uh, in Australia. And so they're actively growing this stuff. It's difficult to grow, which is part of the issue. Mm -hmm. And now you've got all the QC issues around uh, keeping things the same, making sure there's the same amounts of you know, bromoforms and that. Uh, so there's many challenges. And one of the biggest issues with seaweed, of course, is that it's coastal, right? So how do we get it from the ocean to where mm -hmm. livestock production occurs? In Australia, it's not that big a deal because most of it's happening around the coast. You look at somewhere like Canada, most of that's happening in Alberta, Saskatchewan, right? So we now have to get that seaweed into the interior where the production's occurring. Um, but regardless, there, there's some amazing innovation happening in that space. Can we inhibit methanogenesis directly? And that solves your, your, your methane problem. The other way to look at it, though, is, is that seaweed is a potential feed additive, like you can replace different feeds. So most of what is fed to apart from grass, but when we start to get into, you know, uh, you know feedlots and, and uh, winter, for example, like mm -hmm. most of what's mm -hmm. fed to cattle is grain that was intended for mm -hmm. human consumption, but is just not up to snuff, right? So mm -hmm. um, the truth is, though, that that food or that land could be dedicated to cultivating crops for human consumption, right? So this, if we can mm -hmm. offset some of that with, you know, seaweed, for example, uh, there's a way to, to increase the, uh, the, the efficiency of how we're using land to, to generate food. So am I, just so I understand this correctly, if um, the seaweed has some sort of microbe or microorganism that looks like it's inhibiting that sort of uh, methane production pathway. Well, it's, a, it's a chemical, but yeah. It, oh, it's a chemical. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that, that only happens uh, remarkably. Uh, it only happens in a couple of, of species that have been found. Now there is some other anti-methanogenic properties in seaweed that's been found. Some of them grow in Canada, some of them uh, in the North Atlantic. And so there's some other potential there, but that, that one I'm referring to, that only happens with Asparagopsis taxiformis and one of its relatives, Aromata. So, it's it's quite curious, right? How that uh, that discovery was made and the potential that's there. But other seaweeds that actually can be naturally harvested off, you know, Canadian waters. There's other there's other ways to use these in in animal production and other forms of agriculture, whether it's for biofertilization, for mm. example. So, so that we're still studying to confirm whether the seaweed around Canadian coastal waters can also. Uh, result in the same kind of methane inhibition? Well, the, the research is suggesting that it's not to the same level, but there are other okay. things. It is, it is, there is potential for, to reduce it some, and then we don't understand why. So that, that's where the research is going, is can we actually start to get them to the heart of the matter here and figure out, you know, what, what are the differences between these, these two forms of, of inhibition? And that's one of the things that we're actually studying, and many other groups are studying that as well. Do you have a sense of what farmers think about this or, you know, different association groups that represent big cattle? <laughs> so it's funny. It, it, it's a good question. I, I think, um, you know, when you're closer to the waters, there's actually a little bit more awareness and even probably some historical mm. practice. So we're, we're actually collaborating with a farm out um, in Courtney, BC, and, and uh, they feed 
seaweed right off the beach to his cows and he swears mm. his cows are healthy um you know it's an organic farm they're not using antimicrobials so there's mm. there's those types of benefits um there's also the potential to use it as a feed source which is something we're super interested in and kind of actually what got me into seaweed for, for livestock production is that is it actually digested by microorganisms that live in the gut of, of cattle mm -hmm. and it it is. I can say that we've now actually shown with multiple different seeds that there are microorganisms in the gut of cattle that are uh, interacting with and digesting seeds. So that that opens up a whole new opportunity, right, for to be used as a feed, not just um, you know a, a methane inhibitor. That's interesting that those those cows would have the microbes to be able to process those yeah. things to begin with right is that is that or is that am i no, it, or is that not really an interesting thing that, i don't know it sounds interesting to me the most interesting thing that actually is what is fueling the whole research because we the okay. way we see it and maybe you got some other ideas uh, or somebody listening to this podcast hopefully might have some other ideas but the way we see it is there's three potential things that could be happening here one is the microorganisms that live on the seaweed naturally in the ocean they come along with the seaweed, they're consumed, and actually they continue the process of digestion in the rumen. Now, we don't think that's the case because the rumen is an extremely competitive microecosystem. It's anaerobic. Uh, these bugs that live in the ocean are aerobic, so it's not going to be conducive to, to them growing and competing within the rumen. So we don't think it's that. Um, there's something else called the sushi factor which was first a uh, phrase coined by uh, actually a good friend of mine. Uh, he's at, he works at the Max Planck Institute in Bremen, Germany now. We still collaborate, but they had a paper um, in 2010 called the Sushi, the Sushi Factor Hypothesis. And uh, there, what they noticed was that in Japanese populations, there was uh, an enrichment of enzymes that they also found in marine bacteria. So the gut bugs of these Japanese mm. people had enzymes that they found in, you know, naturally occurring marine bacteria. And what do those enzymes do? They digest seaweed. So the sushi factor mm -hmm. hypothesis is that there was a transfer of genetic material from marine bacteria into gut bacteria, and that endowed the, the bacteria in the gut with the ability to digest seaweeds. And there was a selective mm -hmm. pressure because there's more seaweed being consumed, right, in that culture. So a right. really compelling hypothesis. They published it in Nature, and uh, you know a lot of people really like that that idea. Um, now we've got a that's and that's possible. That could be going on here too. Like, but what we I guess where we start to ask some more questions is this is happening in real time. Like, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like the digestion is happening as soon as you feed feed the seaweed. So that suggests that either the transfer of genetic material is happening like in the same time frame as antimicrobial resistance might occur. So if that happens, mm. you would expect the genes coming from the bacteria in the ocean to be very, very similar, if not identical to what you're finding in the gut bacteria, because that material is just transferring over immediately. The selection is there and they start feeding on the seaweed, but we don't see that. We see a little bit of, diversity and, and divergence in the sequence, which takes time, right? So um, mm. that raises the third hypothesis that uh, potentially these, these microorganisms, rumen-associated bacteria are there already, just at very low levels. So we don't see them unless we go hunting for them. But once you put them under selection, you give them that feed that you know only a few of them can consume, they start to proliferate mm -hmm. now to levels that you can see them, you can isolate them out of there. So that's the third hypothesis. I, we don't have the answer, but it's really those ecological principles is what's driving this project. And, and we're so excited about trying to figure out which, which of those three it is. Because that actually that has potential for other, you know, you can think about if we have to start introducing new, new feedstocks whether that's through right. you know, the cycling of food waste or uh, you know, bioplastics or you know, use your imagination. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. if, those, if there's potential there to 
start to target completely unique polysaccharide-based substrates, well, is the potential now in the rumen to digest them. And that opens up some amazing opportunities, I think, for, for just, you know, the circular bioeconomy and, yeah. and uh, the resilience of the sector. So, Yeah, no, that's, uh, that is very interesting. How do you, I don't know if this is a silly question, but how do you know if, if the cows are digesting the seaweed properly or not? Like, what would you look for? Well, typically what you said, there's, there's nutrition metrics, you know, you, so you can look at things like gas production, ammonia, okay. uh, you know, pH changes. Uh, you look at what happens to the animals, some or some gross metrics about weight gain. Um, you mm. look at methane, you know, uh, methane production. Uh, you look at digestibility. Um, well, we, what we are particularly interested in is we can determine the structure of the seaweed. So we can actually track it because it's got unique chemical um, features that won't be in the rest of the diet. So we can actually track it through the different departments, right? Compartments right into the feces to look at, Mm -hmm. you know, is it being consumed or not? We've also got some other, you know, techniques that we've developed to look at, you know, interactions between bacteria and these specialized polysaccharides. And it's quite clear. So some of this isn't published yet, so I won't go into too much too much detail. Uh, we hope to publish this, this stuff very soon, but uh, we're convinced that these, you know, there is digestion occurring and, um, and we're just trying to figure out how and why. Very interesting. Do we know if the nutritional profile of like, so for example, that farmer who swears that his cows are healthier, do we have any indication whether the actual meat is any better or worse? Or yeah, I'm, I'm convincing him he needs to give me a couple of ribeyes and I'll do the taste test. But <laughs> he, uh, he's convinced that they are. Right? So yeah, okay. but that's that's the funny thing about farmers, right? Like they they've got a way of doing things, and um, and this isn't uncommon. Like for you know the East Coast, for example, there's a lot more seaweed production going out there. Access to seaweed. For you know, people raising their cattle right on the coastline historically throughout Northern Europe, um, you know this has been going on. Uh, there's the fascinating example of the Ronald Say sheep, which were abandoned from a ship on nothing but rocks and kelp, and these things survived hundreds of years, and they're there to this day. So, mm. um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely possible, and and uh, it's a really uh, area of science to be in i feel like we could keep talking about this because it is quite interesting i i did i did notice though wade uh one of your i think one of your other research interests which i don't really understand maybe you can kind of dumb it down for people like me is this area of glycomics and apparently it's like this sort of up-and-coming thing or maybe it's already been there but I, i saw that there's like you know governments are interested in this area and People are getting funded for this research into this area. Do you mind telling us about what that is? So glycomics is the study of carbohydrates or glycans in a biological system. So it's like a, it's okay. a general approach, you know, that, that one might take to figure out, okay, what carbohydrates are there and how are they put together, for example. Hmm. It's not that, that it's a new area of science. Like this has been going on uh, in particular in human health. Uh, so this, some of the techniques and instrumentation now is just unbelievable. It's like science fiction, what they're doing now. But usually the focus there is trying to understand how disease happens and how do we fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, also in biomaterials. So there's been a lot of effort going into characterizing, you know, structural fibers, how they're put together, how do we break them down in, you know, an engineering plant. Or, you know, so I think we're we're excited about the opportunities that are arising now. Is we call it agricultural glycomics. So taking some of these more advanced techniques and using mm-hmm. them to study agricultural problems, whether it's it, whether it's a disease, whether it's digestion, like you know of a of a rare dietary element like seaweed, uh, whether it's studying carbohydrates that the plant is secreting into the soil as it exudates to care, you know, figure out how much carbon can we, you know, can we see being deposited in soil. So it's, it's just that we're taking these 
these, these approaches and applying them to new problems in the agricultural space mm. where traditionally they haven't been. Okay. Interesting. I'm going to, if you're okay, I don't, I wouldn't mind shifting to sort of the questions that we typically ask our guests if you're okay. Um, hopefully you had a chance to, to look at them and, and think about them I, and you're not being surprised by them, but, uh, if you're okay with that, the first question that we ask people is dead or alive, who are five people that you would want to have dinner with? Well, I got his number one, Jesus Christ, because he's been okay. the most influential person, I think, in the history of, of humanity yeah. and the way he approached his teaching uh, is something that, you know, means a lot to me. Uh, from okay. science is uh, Louis Pasteur, the father of microbiology, germ theory, disease, vaccination, very relevant topics. Just what he was able to accomplish uh, in his lifetime, it was remarkable. Uh, um, I've got Elon Musk. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I would like to take his... Elon Musk has been on a few people's lists, I must tell you. So. <laughs> I just want to pick his brain. Like, you know, this guy yeah, seems to yeah. have an idea for everything. Um, so, it'd be, yeah. you know, 15 minutes with him might change your life, right? Yeah. Uh, the fourth one I got is uh, Tom Brady. And here's a story okay. of, you know, as a man, you know, former, you know, barstool athlete that I am, is uh, <laughs> how he has defied time uh, and, and performed at such a level. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, if you can bottle that, right? Like he is just, he's a remark, whether you like football, sports or not, like what he's been able to do and perform at that level in two different organizations now at his age is absolutely remarkable. So, Hundred percent, yeah. And this last, you're lucky that uh, Kyle actually is not a fan of Tom Brady, and we, I think we had one guest uh, early on who identified Tom Brady as part of their five, <laughs> and he he was like, you know, I respect the guy, but he's like, I hate him. And I think there's that thing with Tom Brady: you either really love him or you hate him. There's not really this kind of in between. I think. Well, I, I'm sure if he was on his team, though, you'd probably love him, right? It's, it's, yeah, you hate sure. him because he yeah. wins. He just finds ways to beat you. Yeah, so. yeah. And then this fifth one, I actually was thinking quite a bit about this. And the fellow that, uh, you know, I'd like to sit down and just kind of touch base with was my, was that high school teacher in grade 12 that gave me my award. <laughs> just like, does he have any idea? You know, I... The imprint he's left or, yeah. But I have to say, like, it did mean a lot to me at that time, right? And, you know, it's funny, you can right. think about teachers that have a negative impact on your life or a positive impact on your life. And, you know, I think for him too, he might be interested to know that, Hey, one of my, one of my former students actually, you know, went on to a life in science. So I think that would be a fun, a fun conversation too. Yeah. That's a fantastic list. I'm surprised you haven't, uh, is he, do you know if he's still alive I, or you have an opportunity to reach out no, to him? I don't know. So I'm going to have to do that. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's, that's a really interesting interesting list who do you think you'd you'd enjoy at that would you want these people in, in a group at the same time or individual conversations well the one i wouldn't know about is as elon like, <laughs> who knows what he's gonna you know say at the time but um yeah no i think uh, they're all kind of different right like uh for different yeah. reasons so i think they'd be different conversations and probably just one-on-one -on -one, like to sit down with them and, yeah and uh yeah i'd have some questions very cool. Last question, besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Uh, so I, my five, I'll just rattle them off. Our faith, family, fun, hard work does pay off. And this mm -hmm. is one for the kids. Reference letters matter. And so <laughs> leave a good impression. And, and this is actually a bit of a pet peeve is, you know, when you work for somebody and then you only hit them up when you need a reference letter, like, you know, yeah. keep in touch, you know, let your former supervisors know how you're doing, what, what you're doing. I think that that mm -hmm. goes a long way. So authentic relationships. Yeah, eh? exactly. Yeah. 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 Wait, this has been a pleasure. It's been really fun getting to understand your research a lot better. I know we had a conversation before, um, before we set this up and I left feeling 
how am I going to talk to this guy? Cause I don't quite understand. He's this research is too above me. And I was, frankly, I was a little nervous coming into this conversation, but I, I appreciate the way you kind of translated your research and it is really, really fascinating. And, um, yeah, I just appreciate your time today and, and giving me this opportunity to talk to you and also just being vulnerable at the start and sharing sort of the struggles that you had to go through as a, as a young dad and, and with a growing family of three and, and the challenges as an early researcher, I'm sure anyone who is experiencing that at this moment and listens to this podcast is probably going to benefit from that experience. So thank you for that. Uh, we're going to post, uh, I'm going to post Wade's uh, information in the show notes along with his bio and in his research interests and, and, Hopefully you guys like this episode. Wade, again, thank you so much for your time today, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you, Rupresh. Actually, it's it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity, and and for you don't get a chance to talk, you know, about your story very often. So I do appreciate mm. this opportunity a lot. You bet. Okay, take care. Thank yourself. you. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye.